Hey everyone, you're listening to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast with fiction author and national security expert Natasha Bajma. Join me as I interview subject matter experts about weapons of mass destruction and emerging technologies and authors who write about them. We'll discuss the ethical, societal, and technical aspects of science and technology so that you can tell great stories and still get the details right. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 23 of the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. My name is Natasha Bajma, aka WMD Girl on Twitter. I'm a fiction author, national security expert, and your host for this podcast. If you're interested in science and technology, in reading good fiction, or want to write fiction based on technology, you're in the right place. Before we get started, a few notes. The views expressed on this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the National Defense University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. The Authors of Mass Destruction podcast is proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Check us out at www.authorsontheair.com. And if you enjoy my podcast, I sure hope that you'll become a patron for only a few dollars a month at www.patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash Natasha Bajma. As a patron, you'll be supporting my show and helping to cover some of the costs of producing this show each week. Uh, personal update, if you've been listening this far, you know that this is my last episode for a month. I'm going to take a month off in August. I expect to be back on the air after, uh, the Sunday after Labor Day. I think that's September 8th, and I'm planning to focus more on biological weapons moving forward in the next season. My headline for this week is... UPS paves profitable path for drone deliveries as it prepares for nationwide takeoff, published on July 23 in Yahoo Finance Online. Uh, What does this mean? It means the drones are coming. So this is the kind of development that's just going to sneak up on you. It's actually been underway for many years. There have been companies who have been thinking about how to leverage uh, drones for, for various functions in the U.S., but until now... Commercial drone use has been heavily restricted in the U.S. and drone delivery has not been possible. But the UPS expects to receive FAA approval to conduct drone delivery anywhere in the U.S. by the end of this year. That's 2019, people. The future is here. Um, So what are they planning on doing? So they created a new drone subsidiary called UPS Flight Forward, and they've been already using drones in a pilot program to deliver blood samples and specimens in North Carolina, and they're looking to expand their collaboration with hospital systems around the United States. They're not getting into parcel delivery just yet, but this is the future. So Amazon is very much interested in being able to deliver your packages um, via drones. Uh, A lot of reasons for that, uh, cut down on delivery cost. Um, So yeah, Google and Amazon are looking to get into drone delivery. I predict in the next five years, it will not be be unusual Uh, to see drones flying in the air. And that seems very future, doesn't it? So let's get to my interview. This week, I talked to Dr. Vince Houghton. He's a historian, the curator of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. He's the creative director of the SpyCast podcast. He's a U.S. Army veteran, and he's just released his new nonfiction book called Nuking the Moon and Other Intelligence Schemes and Military Plots Left on the Drawing Board. Welcome to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. Today I'm here with Vince Houghton. He's a historian, curator of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., creative director of the SpyCast podcast. He's a U.S. Army veteran, and he just released a new nonfiction book called 
nuking the moon and other intelligence schemes and military plots left on the drawing board. Vince, welcome to the show. Uh, it's great to be here. So I, I know that you recently um, relocated the International Spy Museum to L'Enfant Plaza, a much bigger location. I saw the building. I haven't been able to visit yet. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the Spy Museum, um, what uh, listeners can find there, and why they should come visit? Yeah, no, we're, we're dramatically larger than we were before. And I think that if you've been to the old museum that we've been there since 2002, it was a great museum. It was really focused primarily, though, on human intelligence. So it had a very limited focus on kind of the spy. Well, the new museum, because we have the space, we're really expanding conceptually way beyond that. Yes, we still deal with human intelligence. Of course we do. But that's only one gallery in a museum that now deals with like technical collection. Uh, so overhead reconnaissance and signals intelligence and measurements and signatures intelligence and open source and cryptanalysis and covert action and analysis and CI and CT and all sorts of things. There's, I think, you know, for your podcast, there's maybe a dozen stories that involve WMD in one way or another that, that might have a little bit to do with me. I'm not saying though. <laughs> oh, are you into WMD? Oh, just a little bit. Just yeah. a little <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, I can't wait to go. I actually visited um, your other location a number of years ago, and I can highly recommend it. It's one of the um, most fascinating museums in Washington, and that's saying a lot. There's a lot of great museums in Washington, D.C., but I have an affinity for all things national security, and of course, intelligence and human intelligence um, plays a role. And I'm a storyteller, so of course, spies make great stories. So. Well, and one thing, one cool, cool thing about the new museum is that all the stuff is narrative-based now. So now we're really just telling a ton of stories in the new museum. We didn't have the space to do that in the old museum, but the new museum is really just tons and tons of narrative-based case studies that I think that the visitors will love. And writers. I mean, talk about inspiration. Right. Um, for, for their own stories. And actually, that is what drew me to your book. I'm a nuclear wonk, obviously. And, and so obviously, a book titled Nuking the Moon caught my attention. But um, when, I, when I opened up the description, I was like, wow, there's a lot of food for thought in here for writers. Um, so in your intro, you mentioned that most history books, obviously, are about things that have happened. Your book is about things that haven't happened. Where did you get the idea for this book? Yeah, no, so I, I was doing research for another book, one that's far more academic. It's actually a book coming out this year also from Cornell University Press, and that's focused on nuclear intelligence. So it's a really wonky book that uh, is, you know, footnoted and peer-reviewed. But while I was doing the research for it, I kept running into programs in the archives that I had never heard of before, and that's problematic for someone who you know, claims to be an intelligence historian with a PhD, you're supposed to know a lot about a lot. And there's kind of scared me a little bit that there are stories I hadn't heard of. So I started kind of following along the natural stories. And then very frustratingly for me, after the first couple times, they ended with a cancellation so that the actual operation of the technology never happened. And after one or two times, this was, you know, annoying, but after time, I started going, ooh, I might have to have something here. There might be enough of this stuff that could be put together as a book. And, you know, at that point, I said, all right, let's actually take, you know, some real time and research and see how many stories like this there are. And that came up with, you know, there ends up being 21 stories in the book. You know, when I started hunkering down and kind of talking to Penguin Random House, there were way, way, way more than that. And these are the 21 that kind of make the grade for, 
the broad concept. Uh, there are ones that are obviously prior to World War II and ones that are more modern, but we really kind of hunkered down the World War II and Cold War period because it, thematically it made sense to put those together. Yeah, so of course my favorite section um, of your book is, called, is part four, fun with nuclear weapons. Um, <laughs> obviously we're going to have fun. Um, so I, I'd, I'd love for you to talk about some of the stories, and I have a few of my favorites. So one to kick off um, is titled The Plowshare Program's Strangest Idea. In it, you talk about how the U.S. government actually considered trying to um, stop or derail a hurricane with a nuclear weapon. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. Uh, this was an idea that came, a meteorologist named Jack Reed came up with, and it was a concept that he that popped into his head while he was watching the bikini test. So he was out in the Pacific in the early Cold War watching the above-ground uh, nuclear tests both on land and on water. And he, he saw the, just the massive power of nuclear weapons and realized that the kind of the altitude of the mushroom clouds was dramatically higher than kind of how where, where hurricanes would be altitude-wise. And said, well, if we can get enough power pushed up through the bottom of a hurricane, through the eye, maybe we can disrupt the, the rotation of a hurricane and weaken it or slow it down or even in some cases blow it apart. Now, that was plan A. And plan A was, was iffy. Because I think, you know, even at the time, and certainly we know now that most hurricanes have the, the kind of destructive power or energy inside of them of just thousands and thousands of nuclear weapons. So it's not something you could ever blow up by detonating one or two bombs. But the plan B concept may have had some validity to it. This was to redirect a hurricane. This would have been either using one or two thermonuclear weapons, uh, maybe one on each side multi-megaton, so we're talking big bombs here, so two or even four megaton bombs, um, to try to change the direction of a hurricane. I mean, if you've looked at the track of a hurricane, it basically goes east to west, usually hits the east coast somewhere, and then usually goes straight up, so straight north. Jack Reed's concept was, what if we could turn it north way before that? What if we could turn it north when it was still out in the Atlantic, and it would never hit the East Coast, and it would just kind of go into the Middle Atlantic and peter out. And this was the idea that he had. Now, the problem, of course, is that you can't test this in a laboratory. This is not something that you can test. You certainly can't test the hurricane, and you can't test the nuclear weapon in a laboratory. So the only way Jack Reed could actually know if his program worked or not was to actually nuke a hurricane. And that's great if it does. It's wonderful if his program works, if the hurricane turns. But if it doesn't, then all of a sudden you have a massive hurricane heading toward the East Coast that has just been irradiated. Uh, and that's not a, something that the, the U.S. government was willing to take the chance on. Yeah, well, thank goodness for that. And what's, what's yeah. interesting um, for, for listeners is the Plowshare program, which is a larger program, this was one of many proposals, was um, to explore the peaceful uses of nuclear weapons. So you might ask yourself, well, what are the peaceful uses? Um, and you outline them in your book, large-scale excavations, underground engineering. And um, another interesting piece of this puzzle is that in the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, which was the treaty that um, banned nuclear weapons for all but five states, um, there's a clause in there that protects the rights of countries to explore peaceful detonations of nuclear weapons. In fact, India 
even though they weren't party to the NPT, detonated the first nuclear weapon in 1974 under the guise of peaceful uses. So if you thought it was strange um, you know, to, to blow up a hurricane or try to redirect a hurricane with a nuke, there were many more such proposals. Well, and some of them make sense. I mean, some of them are, are like, it could take you five years to dig a tunnel through a mountain to put a train or to put a, a road, or you could do it in an afternoon with a sure. nuclear weapon. Right. So, I mean, this was a concept that for a lot of people made some sense. And it really wasn't until a lot of the treaties that basically said, hey, look, you know, we're not going to do this. This is not going to be environmentally conscious. And this is not something that makes a lot of sense in the long run. And certainly for kind of NPT considerations, it's not something that makes a lot of sense. And the, so the Plus Air program, you know, was a great attempt by a lot of scientists who realized they couldn't put the nuclear genie back in the bottle. They couldn't uninvent nuclear weapons, but maybe they could find positive things for the world out of their invention. Um, a valid attempt. Um, <laughs> so another really interesting um, chapter in your book is called Protecting the Peacekeeper. And the peacekeeper for the listeners is um, the name of ballistic missile, um, basically uh, carrying 10 warheads, 300 kilotons each, designed, developed in the 1970s. And you, you set up the context is that the U.S., uh, military and policymakers were worried about the vulnerability of our missile silos, which is where we launch ballistic missiles from. They, they're in the ground, um, whereas Russia, I think, and China even today are much more focused on the mobile um, missiles. And so they were looking at different proposals to address this issue. And, and this is really fun. So I, could you talk through some of the proposals about how to address this vulnerability of missile silos? Yeah, I mean, land-based missiles are, are, are sitting ducks, right? I mean, they're just kind of just, you know, not only are they just sitting there, but it's not all that hard in an open society like ours for a Soviet agent to know exactly where our silos are. You could just take a drive across, you know, middle America and figure out where all the key nuclear sites are. And so this was an attempt to, to fix that problem. Obviously, the other two legs of the nuclear triad are mobile. They're, you know, submarines, you know, hard to kill. And aircraft, if you can, if they get up in the air, they're hard to kill there as well. So the concept was you couldn't, we wanted to avoid just sticking the new MX missile, which was the Peacekeeper, in the same silos as the Minutemen because they were very vulnerable. And the idea was, could we come up with new and innovative ways to keep them safe? And so there's a study done by the Pentagon where they came up with just, just a number of incredible ideas. Some of them kind of non-starters from the get-go, right? The idea of, you know, putting them on dirigibles or blimps and just kind of have them floating around, you know, the United States or the world. I mean, talk about sitting ducks, right? Some of them were about, you know, taking them and putting them on the ocean bottom to kind of lock them down to the ocean floor that only would be used in case of war. Some of them talked about pre-orbiting them in space. Of course, a ballistic missile goes into space and then comes back down in kind of one fell swoop. One of the concepts was to we just put them up there to stay, and then they can be kind of launched down against the Soviets whenever they wanted to. So those were some of the relatively reasonable ones. My favorites, there's one called Hydra. And this idea was basically to put water wings on the MX missile, kind of little floaties. <laughs> and just have it, have it sitting out in the middle of the ocean where no one could find it, right? Because it would be kind of randomly dropped there by a ship. And then just kind of bobbing up and down. All you would see is the nose cone of the weapon bobbing up and down. And then, of course, when World War III started, you needed it. You could just launch it from the middle of nowhere. This 
someone at the Pentagon thought this might be a good idea. And until someone pointed out, well, what if somebody runs it over, right? What if a cruise ship comes along <laughs> and runs smack into your, you know, 10 missile merved thermonuclear weapons or worst case scenario is what if somebody spots it and decides to go grab it, right? Forget running into it. What if a Somali pirate ship decides to go take your MX missile or, you know, the IRA spots it, you know, they're talking about back in the 1970s, you know, or Al Qaeda or someone like that. It's just sitting out there. There's no security. It's just grab it if you want it. Uh, and so those ideas kind of never really left the drawing board. And a lot of what the, the programs I got a little further along were the ones that were more domestically based. And this, this included everything from creating off-road vehicles, talking about mobile-based missiles for the Russians and Chinese, off-road vehicles that could kind of traverse the Western United States with single warheads on them, to hold train systems with tracks that would just kind of move around the Western United States and kind of racetrack patterns, to using hovercrafts or using different kinds of means of moving them up and down different river systems inside the United States. Really what it came down to is not a single plan had everything they needed. Everything that they kind of set out as their, their, their standard for meeting the requirements that Congress would accept. Because all of them had drawbacks. Every single one was an issue. Like if you created a road system in the Western United States for these things to drive around on, it would have to be a road system the size of the United Kingdom, right? So it's not <laughs> like it's not like you can just kind of drive it up and down I-10. You had to create road systems that would be designated and, and dedicated specifically for this system. So it came in the end, they spent millions and millions of dollars on these, these ideas and these programs and ended up just deciding to shove the MX missile inside the silos that the Minuteman 3 had been in for, for a couple of decades at that point. Well, that's anticlimactic. <laughs> right where we started off. So, you know, what's, what's interesting, especially with this one, I think I spent three years in the Pentagon and um, some people might think as they read your book, you know, how in the world could a bunch of intelligent individuals sit around and basically throw these kinds of ideas around. And, um, you know, one of the reasons is that we have such a huge defense budget. And one of, one of my first lessons that I learned when I went to the Pentagon was that $50 million was a drop in the bucket. Took a right. while for me to wrap my head around that because I'm like, $50 million, like, I mean, $1 million is a lot of money to me. $50 million is a hell of a lot of money. How can that be a drop in the bucket? Like, nobody pays attention to that. But then, if you look at one fighter jet costing hundreds of millions of dollars and then, you know, a hundred of them costing billions of dollars, then obviously yeah, it's, it becomes small. So one of the reasons I think we can bounce around ideas like this inside the Pentagon is just the enormous resources we have on hand. Um, well, it's also a consideration of the time. There's a reason I chose World War II stories and Cold War stories. And that's because during that time, we, could, we felt as though we had a true existential threat to, these, to the United States. Certainly during the Cold War, we did, right, with mm -hmm. the Russians and their, their tens of thousands of nuclear weapons. And then you could argue our way of life was threatened in World War II with the Nazis and the Imperial Japanese. And at that point, budgets really didn't matter all that much even in that case. Like the idea was you're going to spend whatever it takes to, to mitigate this threat. And combine that with the fact that, yeah, the Pentagon sees dollar signs very differently than the rest of us do. You can see how these ideas got off the ground. In some cases, looking at them in 2019 hindsight is just really unfair. You, you have to, you have to, and I say this in the introduction, 
you have to forget you know the ending. You have to forget you know the ending of the Cold War. You got to forget you know the fact that we won World War II. And put yourself in the shoes of the policymakers at the time. The people making these decisions didn't know the outcome. They didn't understand that this Cold War was going to end without a massive loss of life on both sides. So they were afraid. They were desperate. They were terrified. Mm -hmm. And they were willing to sign off on just about anything. Now, just about anything, that's the whole key behind this book, is not everything, but just about anything to try to mitigate that threat. And I, and I think that's why you see some of these ideas. Number one, that seemed crazy from 2019, but in 1958 or 1965 or 1983, they're not all that crazy at the time. Um, you know, in the same time, it's just people were afraid. They, they thought that we did not have the upper hand. Uh, and they were willing to do anything to get that ha upper hand back. Also, in, in a lot of this, you know, this type of brainstorming was the way that we solved a lot of problems. I mean, if you have studied the Manhattan Project, which I'm sure you've looked at, the, you know, de developing the bomb, a lot of times was uh, coming up with some pretty crazy ideas. Um, and I actually uh, have some examples from real life, modern times um, in the 1990s. I, um, well, I was in the Pentagon a couple years ago, so on um, 2010s, not a couple years ago, nine years ago. Um, and I had the opportunity to work on the Cooperative Threat Reduction Program, which was once known as the Nunn-Luger Program, um, started up in the early 1990s, right after the end of the Cold War, as a response to the perceived threat of loose nukes. So the idea when the Soviet Union dissolved, it dissolved into many separate countries. Several of those countries inherited massive stockpiles from the Soviet Union of nuclear weapons. The Soviet Union, or Russia also had many, many nuclear weapons. And we were concerned that with the economic decline of um, those countries, that they wouldn't be able to secure them. And so a couple of senators got together and they proposed a program that later became known to be the Cooperative Threat Reduction Program. And some of the things that were done to secure weapons, to secure weapons usable material um, during the 1990s were quote unquote almost as crazy as some of these ideas. One in particular, um, in the early phase of that program, we were negotiating with the Russians and trying to negotiate ways to help them secure their nuclear arsenal, but they were very untrusting, obviously, because up until that point we had been enemies to the death and um, you know, why should they show us where their nukes are located? They wouldn't want to do that. Um, and so they ended up sending a rail car, a no kidding for Soviet, old Soviet rail car to Sandia National Laboratory in New Mexico to basically evaluate it and then outfit it with um, upgraded technology that would be better able to secure um, the weapons in transit. So that's one crazy idea. And then another one, um, you probably heard about this one as well, was back in, um, I think it was 2013, 2014 timeframe. I was in the Pentagon at this time and um, maybe it was 2012, 2012, 2013, Syria had um, just crossed the red line um, and used chemical weapons against its own population. And inside the Pentagon, we were all working ways to um, potentially, in, if Syria was willing to give up its chemical weapons, well, how would we destroy them? And um, there are a lot of technologies that the US developed to destroy chemical weapons because we had our own program we had to destroy. Um, and, but, um, Syria was willing, but there was no country that was willing to take the chemical weapons. Um, and so I was in the, in the office and my boss came back and he said, we're going to do it on a ship. I'm like, what? Yeah, we're going to do it on a ship. So it's not, <laughs> and we did, 
the, the Syrian chemical weapons, the, the, the stockpile that existed at the time, they've obviously developed some sense or they didn't come fully, uh, they didn't declare their full stockpile, but we actually destroyed their chemical weapons on a ship in the Mediterranean Sea. Yeah, I mean, you're, you know, when you get to that point, the willingness to do just about anything, you know, I mean, it's, it's you, you, intelligence and, and national security is about problem solving. Right. First and foremost is about problem solving. And in most cases, the problems you deal with are incredibly difficult because if they're easy, the State Department would be able to handle them. If they're easy, the politicians or maybe even Congress, although, you know, they can't really do much of anything these days. But if they're easy problems, they usually don't filter their way down to the right. NASA community or the intelligence community. So every problem you deal with, again, you have to think outside the proverbial box, right? You know, you have unique responses to these problems. And so I'm not, you know, I, I stopped being surprised at some of these programs just because I'm like, yeah, okay, I can see why they thought this way. And I think that's one of the advantages of kind of ignoring hindsight and trying to put yourself in their shoes, which are like, look, I get it. Like, this is a ridiculous idea from a 2019 perspective, but from 1958, eh, it kind of made some sense. Yeah. So um, another one that I really like in just the title alone called Project Iceworm. Um, so you talk about our plan to stash 600 medium range nuclear armed missiles in the ice under Greenland. Talk a little bit about that one. Yeah. This, so this is a plan that, um, again, made some sense, except for the fact that uh, the Greenland ice sheet is not static. It's constantly moving, but no one really thought that at the time. They said, all right, we can build a underground facility with a bunch of tunnels and actually an entire, they built an entire camp there with a movie theater and a bar and a church and laundry facilities and a gym and everything else. And all of this was designed as kind of a scientific expedition, which total nonsense. It was, that was a cover story for what it was really designed for. And that was to build dozens and dozens of tunnels that would allow you to hide MRBMs on mobile platforms that could pop out in case of World War III and be launched against, launched the quick way right over the Arctic Circle against the Soviet Union. And the idea at first made some sense until they started watching the walls moving and started watching kind of the fact that the Greenland ice sheet is a huge glacier and glaciers move. And scientists came out there and said, dude, you're not even going to have a base in five years. Like this is going to be gone, right? These tunnels are gone. Like all this stuff is gone. And they're like, oh, well, we don't really think about that. So they had to abandon the project. And they thought they, they thought they had abandoned it forever. They thought it would be buried for the rest of time. Um, so they left everything behind. They left a nuclear reactor with nuclear waste. They left a bunch of chemical waste behind. They left a bunch of biological waste behind, assuming that no one would ever see it again, right? Because it was buried under hundreds of feet of ice. Well, because of climate conditions and because of the changing climate conditions, we may have to deal with all of that stuff not too long from now. Certainly our kids and grandkids may have to deal with it when the Greenland ice sheet begins to melt and, and push back. All of that area that is just uninhabitable because of all the garbage we left behind um, may be really problematic for, for those that we are descendants. And I think you said in the book as well that um, Denmark, did, well, they didn't want to know or they didn't know. <laughs> yeah, that was the great. So Greenland, of course, at the time, you know, Denmark ran Greenland, they owned Greenland. And there was a, 
even though Denmark was a close ally of the Western powers, even though Denmark likely would have been the vanguard of a war with the Soviets, it's not because they liked the Soviets more, it's because they hated the Soviets more. They were just right there. So they kind of understood how vulnerable they would be if they put nuclear weapons on their soil. So they said no. And we actually made a, a agreement with them, a treaty saying, we will not put nuclear weapons on your soil. Now, that treaty went out the window almost instantaneously because in Greenland, we have one of the most important air bases in the world. That clearly, the weak, weak, nudge, nudge agreement was when we land B-52s there, they won't have nukes on them or they never, they'll never leave the plane. So they technically won't be on the soil, you know, the soil of Greenland. And, and so this was, uh, a kind of situation where we kind of asked them if they wanted to know about what we were doing in this location called Camp Century. And they said, no, no, no. If you don't tell us, then we don't have to lie about it. And then it kind of was one of these wink, wink, nudge, nudge, please look the other way agreements to allow us to put a whole lot of nuclear weapons on, on their soil, which we never did, again, because uh, this is a program that was canceled because of Mother Nature. Uh, and because of the, I guess the inability to look ahead at the fact that a nice sheet is not static. It's not just sitting there. It's moving very slowly, but it's moving. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the, the last chapter in, in your book um, is Project A119, um, the title of your book about nuking the moon. Why in the world would the U.S. ever consider nuking the moon? So in this case, the rationale behind it makes total sense. And, and that's where... Um, we have to, again, forget 2019 hindsight. If we put ourselves in the shoes of the people in 1957 and 1958 in the United States, this makes a ton of sense. In 1957, of course, the Soviets launched Sputnik. And Sputnik scares the living hell out of Americans, not only because Sputnik was launched on top of a missile that could very easily be an ICBM one day, but it was also demonstrating to the world that not only had the Soviets caught up to us scientifically, but in some cases, they had surpassed us scientifically. And that was a problem for Americans. Lots of reasons why. One of the big ones was this is the Cold War, where we're trying to convince the developing world, the Latin Americas, the African nations, the East Asian nations, to join our side versus the Soviet side. And one of the ways that we would argue that we're better than they are is that we said our system will take you from a developing country to a developed country because of our economics and because of our science and our technology. Well, the Soviets are saying, hey, look, our science and technology is better than theirs. Why would you want to be on their side? So we had to do something very, very quickly in order to equal what the Soviets had done. Forget equal, we had to surpass it. We had to show the world that we were the top dogs in science and technology. And that's where this plan comes. It's hatched by the U.S. Air Force. And the idea was we should detonate a large thermal nuclear weapon on the moon. Uh, along the Terminator, which is the, the line between the light side and the dark side of the moon, so that the sun shining behind the moon will illuminate this big mushroom cloud that everyone can see from Earth. And they thought this was a legitimate idea, and they actually passed it along to a project manager, a guy named Leonard Rifle. And Rifle is somebody that's pretty important. He'd worked with Enrico Fermi at the University of Chicago. He had, he had worked on some of the cutting-edge um, modernization of nuclear weapons in the, in the late 40s and early 50s. He had, uh, later in life, he'd be the deputy director of the Apollo program, so in a different thing with the moon involved that we're dealing with right now. Uh, he was 
you know, what's been in the news lately, he was brought in 1986 to Ukraine and Belarus to deal with the Chernobyl disaster. So this is a guy who was not some wackadoodle, you know, Air Force captain at the, in the basement of the Pentagon coming up with ideas. This was a real scientist that had some real gravitas behind him. And he actually brought in people along with him, other people that had real names. Uh, Gerard Kuiper, uh, who if you're, you know, and kind of an astronomy buff, you might have heard of the Kuiper belt which is a belt of objects outside of Neptune. And it was named after him as he discovered it. And Kuiper brought in a young grad student to do math on the program. That guy was Carl Sagan. So these are real scientists that were with you know, a real, you know, uh, these aren't Looney Tunes. These are people that are taking their jobs seriously. And the program was researched. And they put out, actually, a massive, they didn't put it out. They put it out in the last couple of years. But they created a massive report on the kind of, efficacy of detonating a nuclear weapon on the moon and what it would mean. And that's really kind of where you see it falling apart. The idea, of course, was you don't get a mushroom cloud unless you have a dense atmosphere. And the moon has no atmosphere to speak of. It's basically a vacuum. So you're not going to get the beautiful, stereotypical mushroom cloud that you would hear have here on Earth. And the Air Force just didn't quite understand that. They're like, what do you mean you're not going to get a mushroom cloud? I'm like, no, no, no. It's just going to be a lot of dust going in a lot of different directions. It'll still be kind of cool, but you're not going to get like the stereotypical iconic mushroom cloud on the moon. And they're like, oh, that's kind of sucky. I was like, but it'll still be a big boom. Like, yeah, well, it will. You know, but like if you think about why they might have decided not to do this program, I, I grew up with a lot of, you know, little particular interests that have kind of all come together. And one of them obviously was nuclear weapons. One of them was also space stuff. And I, I used to watch The Right Stuff, if you've seen that movie, about 100 times every year. So every chance I get, I'd, I'd throw in that old VHS of The Right Stuff. But even if you haven't seen that, if you watch any documentaries on the early Mercury program, the early rocket program, there's usually some montage, usually about a 10-minute long montage of rockets blowing up on the launch pad, or <laughs> rockets flying about 20 feet in the air and then blowing up, or rockets flying about 100 feet in the air turning around and then flying back into the ground and blowing up. The last thing we would want to do, and these are actually, <laughs> let me give you a context behind this. These are in 1960 and 61 that these rockets are blowing up. So in 1958, when we really didn't know what the hell we were doing, the last thing we wanted to do is put a five megaton warhead on top of one of these <laughs> rockets, try to launch it to the moon, but have it, you know, turn sideways and take out Tampa or take out Miami, <laughs> or something else. And so I think the Air Force said, well, if we're not going to get our pretty mushroom cloud, then it's not worth the risk, and the program was canceled. <laughs> oh, thank goodness. Thank goodness. Yes. Oh, fascinating stuff. So obviously your book is about more than nuclear weapons. What, what other types of stories do you cover in the book? Yeah, so some of the, there's four sections in the book. Um, one of them deals with animals, because why not? I mean, there's so many different incredibly weird ideas that we've come up with using animals as different weapons or intelligence operations, sometimes using animals to heat up nuclear weapons. So there's a, there's actually a nuke chapter in the animal section that I just kind of put over there. Um, there's a section of operations, and this is where these kind of these far-fetched operations that people dreamed up that got very, very close to coming to fruition and were canceled at the last minute. And then there's a chapter on technology. And I mean, a section on technology. And of course, the final section is the nuclear weapons section. So the four, fourth section, nuclear weapons, is really an offshoot of the third section, but it's much more specific about nukes. The third section deals with aerospace technology and, and certainly technology dealing with, um, in some cases, like 
the, the deep underground command center of protecting people against nuclear threats and things like that too. So even though, yes, it is a, it's a, a hodgepodge of different stories, I would say at least half of them actually have something dealing with, with weapons of mass destruction in one way or another. I mean, one of the, one of the animals chapters deals with biological weapons and there's, you know, a couple that deal with chemical attacks and stuff too. So it's a nice mixture of ideas and, and concepts. Well, it's an extremely fun book. So congratulations on this one. And when does your uh, more academic scholarly book come out? It comes out mid September. Uh, and that one focuses on U.S. nuclear intelligence in the uh, Second World War and the early Cold War. Okay. I'm sure that's going to be uh, fascinating as well. So where can listeners find out more about you? Uh, I mean, they just Google my name. I'm all over the place. But the, um, the International Spy Museum website is spymuseum.org. Uh, you mentioned our podcast, SpyCast. That's on iTunes and Spotify and everywhere else you, you listen to your podcast. Um, you know, a lot of other places to um, learn a little bit about the museum and learn about me. I'm on Twitter. I'm not super duper active, but I'm active enough. And I'm at Intel Historian on Twitter. If you want to check me out there, feel free. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for listening to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review. You can also support my time in producing the show with Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Natasha Bajma. For more information about the podcast, go to www.authorsofmassdestruction.com. See you next week.